Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by John Dorney. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of the show, please go to our website irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or check out our Facebook page as well, the Irish History Show on Facebook. We have to say as well, we recently did a television show up in Belfast with Barry Shepherd, a regular contributor to the Irish Story website on his show called History Now. That was good, wasn't it, Sean? Yeah, a good experience. Yeah, we did one on the uh, Civil War and how it affected the North. So if you'd like to see that, it's actually up on Vimeo and just look up History Now, NVTV. Today we're talking about the 1918 general election. And it's a very seminal event in Irish history, isn't it, John? Absolutely. I mean, it's probably the seminal event of 20th century Irish history. Yeah, it was such a watershed moment in terms of the rise of republicanism and many other factors as well that we'll get into. But to sort of place into context, why is the 1918 election so important, do you think? Well, for Irish republicans, symbolically everything starts with the rising of 1916, kind of the demonstration in arms and the declaration of the republic. But in reality, in political reality, it starts with 1918 with the mandate from the people to declare independence, to declare an Irish Republic. And all the legitimacy which Irish Republicanism, but also the Irish state as it exists, claims for itself, stems from the mandate of the people in 1918 in the 32 counties for independence. Now that's obviously disputed, but that's the central importance of it. And over the next three years, the mandate of the December 1918 election is used to justify and to legitimise the declared Irish Republic, the, the rebel Irish Republic, that's declared in Dublin in January 1919. So everything to do with Irish independence really flows from Irish independence as conceived as a democratically mandated state all stems from 1918. Would you agree with that? Yes, very much so. Like We, we should say as well that um, this election in 1918, <coughs> Ireland is still a part of the United Kingdom. This is a general election for the whole of the United Kingdom. It's before partition and also which we can sort of compare and contrast the results. There hasn't been a general election in Ireland since, or a general election in the whole of the UK since 1910. And we end up with very different results. So what, what do you think the composition of, the, of Irish MPs was in 1910? Can you tell us? Yeah, well, in 1910, you had basically three parties in Ireland, uh, two big parties, the Irish Parliamentary Party, the Home Rule Party, the descendant of, of Parnell's party, and yeah, the Unionist Party. And there was an also also a small there was a small nationalist rival to the IPP called the Ulf Ireland League, which was headed by William O'Brien, an MP from Cork who had defected from the party. But basically, it was dominated by those two parties. It was also Lawrence Ginnell, who um, was an IPP member who defected actually to Sinn Fein, and then he was defeated in a by election. The country was basically dominated by two major parties: the Nationalist Party, which was in favour not of independence but of home rule, of autonomy in the United Kingdom, and the Unionist Party, which is obviously dead set against it. And one big difference to the scenario today in that regard is that unionists also existed in the South. There was unionist MPs in Dublin, for example, mm-hmm. and play other places in the South of Ireland where we wouldn't think of them today. But in about three quarters of Ireland, the the party, as it was known, and, and that tells you about its dominance, the party it was known as was completely dominant. The unionists had their stronghold in North East Ulster. One of the things we know is in 1910, and to a lesser extent in 1918, is a lot of the candidates that are returned are unopposed. Yeah, so in, in 1910, and this 
This is consistent with a long-term trend in Irish politics. 64 out of 105 seats were unopposed in 1910. So that's the majority of them. That's over 60% of the seats are unopposed. And this, this is quite consistent with the pattern going back to the 1880s and before. When you talk about the dominance of the Irish Parliamentary Party, it was so pronounced in most of Ireland, with the exception of a couple of places like Mayo and, and Cork, where the, William O'Brien's party challenged them. It was so pronounced that most of the time, in most constituencies, people didn't even run against them. Mm-hmm. Most of them in, in the south of Ireland were elected unopposed. Now, there were very volatile constituencies like West Belfast, for example, where Joe Devlin had, had to fight elections against unionists, where the unionists were obviously very strong in most of Belfast. And there the party, you know, retained kind of a, a, a more functional on-the-ground organisation very much backed up by organisations like the Ancient Order of Hibernians, which is Catholic-only organisation, and also by the United Irish League, which was kind of like a constituency organisation by that time. But the thing to remember for our purposes for 1918 is that most of the party and most of the party organisation hadn't been fighting elections with any frequency, so they were actually quite inexperienced about it. Mm despite the fact that they were dominant in Irish politics. And another factor, Carl, you might want to talk about is that the, the franchise was much lower in 1910. Yes, one of the things we notice during the 19th century into the 20th century is the extension of the franchise and how this affects voting patterns and the amount of people who actually have the right to vote. In the early 19th century, the amount of people who had to vote is quite small for quite a large country. Yeah, and one of the strange things about that is it actually gets smaller in the in the mid nineteenth century, uh, which is not something you'd expect, really, you know. But what happened was that the um, the vote was extended first of all to Catholics in seventeen ninety five, back when the Irish Parliament itself was, was still operational, when Catholic emancipation was granted, which meant the Catholics could hold office for the first time since the reign of James II. The electorate was actually cut, and Daniel O'Connell, the Liberator, agreed to this. It, you know, it was to make sure that there wouldn't be too radical a change in representation. But as the franchise was extended across Britain, it was extended in Ireland as well. And the, the real breakthrough comes in the, the 1870s where this franchise is extended to most householders. And it's also introduced the secret ballot, which makes a big difference, especially in the year of landlords, where you know there wouldn't be consequences for voting against the landlord. Because in rural areas, landlords had almost universally held these seats. And suddenly after the 18, 1880s, they don't anymore. And there's a reason for that, which is that people are no longer allowed more tenants have the vote and B, they're not afraid to vote against them. So in the 1880s, you start to see kind of pop, this popular nationalist movement under Parnell coming out. And you also see popular unionism also developing, especially in the north, but not only in the north. And to a much lesser degree, but more local election, you start to see labour organisations in places like Dublin and Cork, but but in a much, much lesser extent. Well, we see a democratisation of local government as well in this period in the, the 1890s. So it's a 1910 general election. Only males can vote, mm. but there's a property qualification as well. Yeah. So not all males can vote over a certain age. Yeah, and there's different ways of calculating this. Like Fergus Campbell in his book, The Irish Establishment, puts it as low as 15% of the total population. Now, that is true, but it's it's a kind of a false figure because that means that is the, the total population, mm. right? Now, obviously, nearly half the population is under the age of 21, so first, there's that. And secondly, only males can vote. So, it, yeah, it might be as much as 60% of males. Yeah. And um, depending on how you calculate, depending on how young the population was. Yes. But it's between 40 and 60% of males have the vote in 1910. But as we said, because most constituencies weren't actually contested, very few of them had actually exercised their franchise. 
Well, it raises a question as well, when, um, especially during the First World War, because this is the big issue between the 1910 and 1918 elections. And the 1918 election happens in December. And obviously we have the armistice on the 11th November 1918. But like the big issue in the intervening period is the First World War. And one of the arguments that they put up is the democracies on one side and uh, uh, the, um, the autocracies. autocracies on the other. But could the UK really be considered a democracy in 1910 or before 1918 when women don't have to vote and not all men have a vote and it's based on the property qualification so a lot of working class uh, men don't have to vote well britain itself is, is going through convulsions in these decades you know if you look back at the days of the people's budget for example where the liberal government tries to introduce kind of a social democratic kind of budget it's voted down by the house of lords and the house of lords have rights are then restricted by by the liberal government so there's pretty um strong conflict in Britain itself, you know, on these very questions, is Britain a democracy mm. or is it, you know, as as many conservatives saw it, you know, a representation for taxpayers, yeah. which is a different conception, you know. But one thing that does change everything in all of the UK, but most dramatically in Ireland, is the representation of the People Act. So what was that? Well, this was a, a bill that was brought in and became an act um, to extend the franchise to all all men over 21 and to women over the age of 30 who there was a property qualification as well if they or their husband uh, were occupying uh, land or a property with a rateable value of over £5 a year. The idea very much was that like you couldn't bring in votes for women and then the first time that, that uh, is exercised, the majority of the electorate are women. That would have been too radical a change for the previous parliament that reluctantly perhaps mm-hmm. had granted women the vote in the first instance and also due to the First World War as well so many men had lost their lives. Mm-hmm. So there was a bit of a, a gender imbalance at that stage in the UK. Well, my understanding is as well that Lloyd George, who was a liberal, of course, which is the left-wing party of the day, uh, saw that you couldn't ask people to make such a huge sacrifice in the war and then deny them the vote. Yes. I think that, that that is part of it. I think one of the things as well was that uh, servicemen over 19 could vote. So they, they made that... Uh, uh, they made that concession. But... Um, Yes, it would be difficult to expect so many people, so many working class people to go out and fight and die in the trenches and not have a say then through the ballot box on what type of uh, country they're coming back to. Especially, as you say, since the rhetoric of the First World War, certainly in the second half of the war, was all about, you know, defending democracy against autocracy and the rights of free nations and so on like that. Yeah, and one of the effects this has is that it it almost triples the electorate in Ireland Mm -hmm. for the 1918 election. And some areas quadruples even. In Dublin, it's, it's more like quadrupling. Yes. And um, so the question is, how does this affect the voting patterns then in 1918? Now, let, let, let's park that for a little bit and come back to it. Because like, the situation in Ireland is, is quite fraught by the time we get to the election in December 1918. Mm-hmm. So in a nutshell, what had been going on in Ireland in the last four years? As people know, we're, we're going through the decade of uh, commemorations and the centenaries that have happened already and the ones that are coming up in the future. There's so much stuff. It's such a such a, a history-laden decade. You have the Home Rule crisis. And the Home Rule crisis, we should emphasise, is when the, uh, Home Rule, which is autonomy, not independence, should be emphasised, is passed in the British Parliament, but it gets stuck there because of Unionist opposition. In theory, shelled for the war, but it looks like it gets guillotined in the sense that there's going to be, partition is going to be thrown in with it. 
So home rule is kind of dead by the end of the war as a popular thing in the south yeah, of Ireland. But like in those two years, Ireland comes very close to uh, civil war. And um, this isn't something that's solely affecting Ireland as Ireland is part of the UK. This is something that's convulsing the entire, the entire political system throughout Britain and Ireland. And we also have the labour disputes in 1913. Uh, we have the, the founding of the private armies, the UVF and the Irish Volunteers. And then obviously the huge convulsions throughout the whole of Europe of the First World War. Mm. And then the rising, most people will be aware of, of course, in Easter 1916, where there's there's a pretty serious insurrection in Dublin City. But for our purposes, I think the most important thing that comes out of all this is the rise of a new party, which is Sinn Féin. Yes. And, and Sinn Féin, as we know it, is probably born out of the rising, or particularly after the prisoners from the rising were released in, in late 1916 and 1917. So what was this new Sinn Féin party? The interesting thing is that Sinn Féin is, as, as I was going to say, as a brand is so contested by several different parties. Like the, the Sinn Féin that's founded in 1905, Arthur Griffith's party, could it even be said to be the same party that's existing in 1917? People will argue about this. Yes, because uh, after the rising, after the release of many of the uh, internees, you have this coming together of several different groups, like you have... Camp Plunkett's Liberty League, you have the Irish Volunteers, you have the old Sinn Féin party and there's this founding of a new Sinn Féin party committed to separatism, committed to an Irish Republic, which isn't necessarily what the original Sinn Féin was committed to. Yeah, I mean this, you know, we'll have to, you can talk all day about the evolution of Sinn Féin actually, but the for our purposes the important thing is that in 1917 Sinn Féin has an Ardèche uh, where most of the volunteers are, or many of the volunteers are integrated into Sinn Féin and they vote to pursue an Irish Republic by Griffith's policy of 1905, which was to abstain from Westminster and to set up an Irish Parliament. So this new Sinn Féin is like a hybrid. So Griffith's method to use electoral means, but like the Republican end. Yes. Uh, but I, I guess the other thing that I would emphasise about Sinn Féin, and you can come in, Cahill, is it's a young party. It's a young man's party and young woman's party too. It, they're people who haven't an affiliation with the old parliamentary party. You don't have affection for it. And we really want to see radical change in Ireland. Yeah, and we can notice that, especially in the by-elections, because the parliament that exists between 1910 and 1918, it's, it's, there hasn't been an election in during the fixed term that's expected because of the war. It's gone on longer than expected. So there's several by-elections happening in this period. And we can see that the enthusiasm of these young supporters of Sinn Féin during the by-election and the, the radicalisation of the events such as the rising and the subsequent aftermath, the executions, um, gets this whole new layer of people involved. People who had been, probably to a large extent, alienated by the parliamentary party. Yeah, and I mean, it, you know, I did an interview with Tomás McConaughey about this in, regarding the East Clare by-election where, very symbolically, Dev, Eamon de Valera, who was one of the surviving commandants of the rising, not the only one, as sometimes claimed, took the seat, which was vacated by Willie Redmond, who was the brother of John Redmond, the leader of the parliamentary party who had died in the war. So it's two diametrically opposed visions of what Irish nationalism should be. And the one that embraces separatism and embraces, embraces republicanism won. Yeah. It's very dramatic. And the other thing about it is, is that de Valera explicitly endorses the rising. You know, he wears his volunteer uniform. You know, there's rhymes and songs about him fighting in the rising and so on like this. So... There's certainly there's something bubbling here. There's people are are rejecting home rule, rejecting British rule, 
and going for this the separatist project. But as well, you know, we should say that um, when people talk about the by-elections in 1917 and 1918, it's thought of as like one Sinn Féin success after another. That shows that the, the Irish Parliamentary Party was just ready to crumble and collapse, but this isn't the case. Right. You know, there, there are a string of Sinn Féin victories, but then in early 1918, the Irish Parliamentary Party win several by-elections against Sinn Féin. Exactly, and yeah, Tyrone, Waterford and South Dermot, I believe. I think one of the interesting things when you read through the Bureau of Military History witness statements, one of them I was reading about the by-election in South Armagh and the other factor, factor as well being that this is Ulster and the different type of politics, nationalist politics you have in, in Ulster is it's a very fraught election. It's uh, You see even like GAA clubs splitting into like a Hibernian GAA club and a separatist GAA club within the Wuhan Paris. It's a very bitter election. Yeah, now that's a good thing to emphasize as well for, for listeners. So we mentioned there's two rival nationalist parties coming into this election. So there's the IPP and Sinn Féin. And especially in Ulster, you know, they're really heated rivalry. Like we're talking about violence, serious violence, you know, riots, shots fired, people beaten up, you know, mm. uh, uh, election literature, you know, smashed. All, all the, the full the full works. And this isn't a new event for internationalist conflict within general elections, is it? Not at all, no. I mean, Irish politics is notoriously unruly uh, in the 19th and early 20th century. In, in 1910, the, the All-For-Ireland League, which tried to carve a niche for itself in nationalist politics, was basically beaten off the streets and, and, and the platforms in places like Cork and Mayo. Mm-hmm. But elections of late 19, by-elections of late 1917 and early 1918 do show the Parliamentary Party, especially in the North, has life left in it. But then... Before we get to the crooks in the December election, the conscription crisis hits, which for my, for my money is the big turning point. Would you go along with that? Yeah, absolutely, because one of the factors involved is that the Irish Parliamentary Party is so closely identified with the war effort and recruitment and, you know, support for the British war aims, whereas Sinn Féin from the start and the separatist movement in general has been anti-war, anti-recruitment, so no matter how much the Irish Parliamentary Party oppose conscription, oppose it in Parliament, oppose it in Ireland, they don't seem to get any credit for when conscription doesn't come to pass in Ireland. Right, so Sinn Féin, in theory, all parties actually sign up to an anti-conscription pledge, except for the Unionists, mm. who I believe were overtly in favour of conscription, but secretly not not so keen. But Sinn Féin ended up kind of leading the anti-conscription crisis, and as you say, getting the credit from nationalist voters. And one thing I find interesting is that even though John Dillon, so John Redmond died in early 1918, even though John Dillon did oppose conscription being imposed on Ireland, yeah. a lot of the Sinn Féin propaganda for the 1918 election is to do with John Redmond and is, is you know pointing at all these ghosts of the people yeah. he sent off to war. A lot of it talks about, you know, John Redmond sent off Irishmen to die for England. It's funny in a way that the Irish Parliamentary Party has been tagged with this sort of neo-unionist brush, whereas Redmond obviously is so closely identified with the the war and recruitment. There's many MPs within the Irish Parliamentary Party who were veterans of the land war, who were veterans of the, of the uh, IRB, even, yeah, yes, yeah. and veterans of, of prison too, who would spend spells in, in Well, even in Redmond jail. Was, was actually in prison himself once yeah. upon a time. So uh, I think people like Dylan would have been far less enthusiastic about the war than somebody like Redmond. Right, but but that was the position they were stuck with. That's the problem. Yeah. And the other thing I think which is significant about the conscription crisis is 
So the parliamentary party's argument has always been that the way to get results is to go to Westminster and play the game and you can use your influence at Westminster. And the Sinn Féin argument is there's no point going to Westminster. And that's precisely what happens to the conscription crisis because Dylan withdraws from Westminster yes, and, and leads a mass movement instead or helps to lead it. And that's what gets results. So it's a big fill-up for the Sinn Féin argument that the way to get results is, is actually not to play the game in Westminster but to, to do your own thing in Ireland. Yeah, like they're, they're making the argument for abstentionism. And we get back to, you know, the Sinn Féin since, since its inception, since first Sinn Féin in 1905. Griffith has this idea modelled on Hungarian nationalism, which is in his famous book, The Resurrection of Hungary, that Hungarian nationalists in Austria-Hungary, or the Austrian Empire as it was then, Habsburg Empire. Yeah, withdraw from the imperial parliament in Vienna and set up their own assembly in uh, Budapest and this is the model that Griffith wants to follow but like the Griffithite idea in 1905 is a return to the 1782 idea of, of Ireland like a uh, a commons right. lords and king yeah, in Ireland it's being actually, the British it's king. actually quite conservative yeah. yeah but the new Sinn Féin as we said before is something different it's a republican Sinn Féin very different, yeah. But even still, even that Griffithite idea of like the 1782 model is very, very different to the Irish Parliamentary Party's idea of a assembly in Dublin, a parliament with very limited powers within the United Kingdom. Very similar to the idea of Stormont within the UK yeah. from 1921 to 1972. I mean, in some ways even less, really. I mean, because, you know, Stormont has... Um if not, not quite control over the police, but oversight, which the Irish Parliament wouldn't have even had, you know, the Home Rule Parliament. I guess the point to make, though, that I, that I would make is by the time the December 1918 election comes around, the parliamentary policy of, of going to Westminster and then, you know, asking for limited autonomy has been discredited by a whole range of things, be it the repression of the rising, be it the attempt to impose conscription and, and the defeat of conscription, um, which another argument that I would make is that British policy in Ireland is, you know, it's sort of done as an afterthought, I suppose, because of the, the First World War. But it's they're, they're never consistent either in repression or in concessions. It's always half measures, which is the worst of both worlds, because they, they look both cruel and weak at the same time, which, as Machiavelli said, yeah. you should never look. Yeah. By the time you get to 1918, I mean, Sinn Féin are in the driving seat. I mean, so this thing of, of by-elections goes back in their favour. Griffith gets elected in Calvin. Cosgrave gets elected in, in Kilkenny. I mean, they're riding on a wave. I, didn't, I think... If you look at the accounts at the time, I think uh, almost everyone expected a Sinn Féin landslide by the end of the year now. Well, I wonder if that's the case with the successes that the Irish Parliamentary Party have had in those limited constituencies. As you say, like, you know, people expect Sinn Féin are going to do very well. And the point to be made that I think Harry Boland was the director of elections and he was discussing his expectations and he was talking about it's going to be 75 seats upwards. So it didn't come as a surprise to yeah. many within Sinn Féin, but I think maybe to a British audience, maybe to uh, many within Ireland, it wouldn't have been within the Sinn Féin movement, would have been surprised at the scale of the victory. Well, one thing, actually, just before we go on to the election itself, that, that I think we need to emphasise is that it's not probably by international standards uh, an entirely free election, in the sense that a lot of the Sinn Féin prospective MPs, the candidates and their election organisers, including Frank Gallagher, who was their director of elections, were in prison under yeah. the Defence of the Realm Act. 
you know, quite quite a lot of them were. So, you know, people talk about the violence and impersonation, which we'll get onto, which there was, but the only party with whose activists and candidates were getting arrested and put in prison was Sinn Féin, and including the leader of the party, Eamon de Valera, arrested under the German plot, which was a very ne- nebulous idea that there was some sort of contact with the Germans, they knew not what, but they were going to arrest a whole lot of people based on this assumption. Well, I think another problem as well is that people date the... War of Independence started the War of Independence January 1919 as if really nothing's happened between the rising and January 1919 where there is low level conflict throughout different parts of the country definitely localised in set areas but there is conflict going on between the ROC and separatists in specific parts of the country in this period 100% like not military conflict it's, it's more like riots and arrests and it hasn't and there was one or two deaths, like for example, there's a policeman in Dublin who's killed with in a riot, hit over the head with a hurley. There's a couple of volunteers killed in County Kerry in an arms raid, and there's a, a volunteer in Clare killed in a cattle drive, shot dead by the police. It's it's not nothing like a war yet, but certainly there's there's conflict, yeah, absolutely. As well as the political expectations, like the having moved on from this very limited autonomy to uh, an Irish Republic. There's also all these other social undercurrents bubbling underway. There's um, land agitation, yeah. there's price rises, there's labour agitation. So there, there is definitely a lot of discontent under the surface that Sinn Féin can exploit. Absolutely, and that's something that's probably lost to history. You know, you'd have, um, you have to really go back and look at the, the sources of the time to see it. But stuff like, yeah, the, the price rises during the war benefited farmers but they you know they disadvantaged urban workers so in, in urban areas um, Sinn Féin and volunteer activists are saying you know the English are exporting food from Ireland and they usually did say the English by the way not the not the British are exporting food just like they did it in 1847 during the famine uh, and the volunteers are sent down to the docks and they seize food and they hand it out to people you know populist things like that land reform uh, was suspended during the war so you know in some areas like in County Clare Michael Brennan go on cattle drives so they, they help people to occupy land because you know they they think the land should be on to the, the farmer, it varies area by area. But Sinn Fein do a lot of kind of populist things, as well as purely saying it's time for Ireland to be independent, which they do say. Let's get on to the dog that didn't bark. The Labour Party did not stand. The nascent Labour Party in nineteen eighteen yes. and controversial to this day. Yeah, can you talk about that? Well, this is one of the things that some people will raise about why Ireland didn't have a traditional left right, and maybe the. Labour movement cut a bridge that divide, the sectarian divide, the north-south divide. But there is the argument that Labour were damned if they do and damned if they don't because it's an all-Ireland body. It's trying to contain unionists and nationalists within its ranks. And even at the 1918 elections, I think there are secretaries and treasurers writing back to the various unions, writing to the Labour head office saying, well, like our members are canvassing for Sinn Féin, our members are going to vote for Sinn Féin. Some of our, you know, local leadership are running for Sinn Féin. So um, could Labour have entered the fray? Would they have been viewed as spoilers, especially in a first-past-the-post electoral system where, you know, a split vote in somebody else? So this idea that Labour must wait and that the social issues will be dealt with after the national issue has been dealt with, that's the pressing concern at the moment. Yeah, now, Brian Andy's talked about this, um, and he has said that it's not a case that Sinn Féin asked Labour not to stand. It was that Labour decided itself not to stand. Well, it would have been faced with many 
many difficult questions. The first one is over the issue of abstentionism. Like if Labour gets elected in different seats around Ireland, do they then take their, their seats in Westminster? Or do they decide to form an abstentionist parliament with Sinn Féin? Yeah. And if they do, how does this affect their supporters in Belfast? Not just the ones who are unionists, but the ones who are trying to appeal to unionist votes. Yeah, and in in some ways, I think there there is some merit to the argument that you know the it was a shame in that it split the labour movement. Some most labour, like there wasn't really a labour party before nineteen eighteen. It was a nascent thing, but most labour activists in the north were pro home rule, whether they were from Protestant background or not, and. Uh, there wasn't anywhere for them to go in terms of the split between Republican separatists and unionists. So that a lot of them ran as independent labourites in, in the election and did okay actually in Belfast, although yeah. they didn't get elected. Yeah, there, there, there's uh, a good showing by the Belfast labour labourites, um, but none of them take a seat. And you have the growth of the Ulster Unionist Labour Association, which is basically an organisation set up by unionism to appeal to working class unionism and uh, working class unionists uh, in Belfast and to prevent them from voting for socialists, left-wing activists and uh, labourites who would have been pro-home rule. Yeah, now, okay, let's let's cut to the chase. Let's talk about the meat. The election comes around on December the 14th, 1918 and Sinn Féin sweeps the boards. Can you talk about the scale of their victory? Well, they win 73 seats out of 105. That's a, an enormous landslide. The Irish Parliamentary Party is virtually wiped out. They win six seats. Now, four of those are part of a pact in Ulster. There's a pact organised by uh, Cardinal Logue. Catholic uh, Cardinal. The should, Catholic Cardinal. We should clarify. Yes. According to Dorothy McCardle, interestingly, I was reading over the, the classic The Irish Republic recently, and she says that Sinn Féin didn't actually want the pact, but that Owen McNeill went ahead and agreed on their behalf. Now, yeah, it's not the first time I've seen that as well, and not, not in McCardle's work. But anyway, the, the seats were split between, or they were divided by the Cardinal between the two nationalist parties, so the unions wouldn't get in basically in the north, or try to keep as many of them out as possible. Yeah, and that is one of the things with the first-past-the-post system, is that... Uh, highest vote wins obviously but like if you had you know a nationalist on 5,000 votes a republican on 5,000 votes and a unionist on 7,000 votes the unionist wins the seat even though there's 10,000 anti-unionist votes in the constituency so and this happens in East Down as a, a majority nationalist constituency and the pact breaks down both an Irish parliamentary party candidate runs and the Sinn Féin candidate runs they split the nationalist vote and the union takes the seat on a minority of the votes cast yeah now in the rest of Ireland you mentioned the IPP held on to a seat in Waterford which was the Redmond seat um, so Captain William Redmond son of John Redmond held on to the seat that's the only one there's a unionist seat in Dublin held by Maurice Dockrell it went on to found a dynasty of, of, of Irish politicians but apart from that it's it's a clean clean sweep I think for Sinn Féin in the south yeah and they're, they're two very interesting elections there that you've just mentioned because one of the things we've seen there recently um, up on YouTube, a lot of the old British pate film footage is being digitised and put up onto YouTube. And you can see the election there in Watford. And one of the things about William Redmond is that he canvasses the entire election wearing his British Army officer's uniform. Yeah. And he defeats 
the Sinn Féin candidate and there's a lot of interesting things there within that election but within the election as a whole like the role of separation women the role of ex-service men now let's let's talk about that so the separation women are the, the families not only the women but the families of people who had joined the army during the war and then there's ex-service men most of whom were still probably in in France at the time mm-hmm. but you know and some of them would have been demobilized already I suppose or were injured or what have you but there is certainly an identification in the election that the servicemen and their families support the parliamentary party. And yet, despite the fact the number of servicemen, you know, there's 200,000 plus, you know, that doesn't really do much for the, the party in, in most of Ireland. No, like, you know, if we get into the actual amount of votes cast, like about 47, 48% like, of the uh, electorate vote Sinn Féin. And that doesn't seem like the landslide overwhelming victory that's the deceit allocation would would have you believe but the one thing we have to remember when you start to crunch the numbers though it starts to look like a lot more yeah like there's an awful lot of uncontested seats not to the same extent as 1910 uh 27 seats are uncontested but this is in areas where the irish parliamentary party have just given up the ghost and see no point in even contesting the seats or or as we alluded to a while ago they didn't have a very strong organization because they hadn't been winning elections hadn't been fighting elections for for decades yeah, like some of these seats, there hasn't been a contest from 1890s, sometimes going back into the 1880s. All of the ones that Sinn Féin had won in by-elections are uncontested, to my knowledge. If you assume that Sinn Féin would have won a large majority in them, which they would, and then if you take away the seats where they didn't stand, it starts to look a bit more like 66% yeah. of the of the vote. Yeah. And, and it, it was more probable, and it, it's, it's more in line with the share of seats they got. Another strange thing, though, to, to modernise, certainly, is that people can run in more than one constituency. Yeah, and I think four TDs, MPs, end up holding more than one seat. So De Valera, for example, he's uh, the MP slash TD for East Clare and East Mayo. And he runs in West Belfast. He runs in West Belfast as well. And that's another quite contentious, violent election where Joe Devlin... this This isn't one of the packed seats in Ulster. This is like a straight run between Sinn Féin and the Irish Parliamentary Party. And even the leader of Sinn Féin, Eamon de Valera, probably the most well-known and an international figure at this stage, uh, he still is not able to dislodge Wee Joe up in West Belfast. Well, Wee Joe, as we mentioned, was in, uh, had a very strong political organisation. He had the Hibernians. Uh, he had the, the, I'm not sure the UL was, was a big deal in the North, more of a Southern thing, but he had the Hibernians and he also had a strong on the ex-servicemen. And strong in things like the factory girls, which might might not seem like a big deal, but one of the things that Devlin said was that uh, he was the real Labour candidate. Whereas Devlin, you know, it was Devlin, I believe, who came up with the famous line Dev, that Devlin said, "Labour must wait," you know, which is interesting. Outside of that, though, I mean, there's I came across an interesting quote from County Kerry, where the the previous MP for County Kerry or part of County Kerry said he was going to stand aside and let the whirlwind of insanity pass. That was Sinn Féin, and, and that the sober people of Ireland would, would come to their senses. But there is really a landslide for Sinn Féin, I think, once you drill down into it. Now, a recent question that people have been debating, and there's been a project up in Queens, I think, about this. Was it the case that with the electorate tripling or quadrupling, that a whole cohort of new, poorer and female voters voted for Sinn Féin? The people, you know, the, the people have been waiting for their chance to vote away these conservative old people. Mm. Or was it the circumstances do you think of the extraordinary events since 1914 in Ireland? Well, that's interesting because 
like as, as you can see from the unionist victories, which are quite conservative party, probably Ireland's most conservative party, women were quite prepared to vote for that. They were, they were going to vote on you know national issues before they'd vote on gender issues. But at the same time, they're not the only conservative party when it comes to women. Like John Dillon's famous line, you know, it would be the end of Western civilization if women ever got the vote. But it does help to explain why they did so poorly in the, in the South, though, I, I think, yeah. possibly with the, with the new franchise. Yes, like, you know, the, while the, the nationalist vote did collapse, it didn't collapse entirely. No. You know, um, there's still a, a, a bedrock of support there for the Irish Parliamentary Party. But over eight, eight years, uh, a lot of the older Irish Parliamentary Party voters uh, would have passed away. What did people think they were voting for with Sinn Féin and what were they actually voting for? Like what was Sinn Féin's programme? Well, it's an interesting question because Sinn Féin are quite explicit that they are seeking a Irish Republic. Now, they, they make the point that after the Republic is established and once Britain is completely removed from the Irish political scene, Irish people of their own free will can then vote if it's, if it's what they want to re-enter the Commonwealth, to form some new relationship with Britain. But they have to remove this threat of coercion there. has to be completely coming from the Irish people themselves, what relationship they want with Britain. But how do we get this is by an independent sovereign republic. And then at a later stage, if they want to amend this and change it to something else, they can. Whether the Irish people as a whole believe this was even possible is another thing. But what they voted for, though, I mean, I think this needs to be really, point really needs to be made, is they voted for an abstentionist Republican Party. And, yes. and they make no bones about it. They say, that's what we're going to do. We're going to abstain from Westminster. We're going to enact our own parliament and we're going to declare independence, which is exactly what they did. For yeah. once, a political party doing exactly what it says it's going to do. Yeah, that's so very true. I think there's not much ambiguity there, but there is ambiguity, I think, in the question of, did people know that they were potentially voting for, for war or for... Uh, insurrection whatever you want to call it that's a trickier question yeah very much so like is it a, a mandate to go to war with britain that is the question and that maybe is the issue throughout the the it, first all it becomes a big issue especially in light of of later events throughout the century like if, if it's a mandate to you know to take on the british empire here by force of arms and actually in the election though i mean Sinn Féin are very ambiguous about this so they endorsed the legacy of 1916. They glorified 1916, so there's no repudiation of violence. Um, and in their manifesto, or they don't have quite have a manifesto, but in their literature they say, you know, we will use any and every means to to um, take away the British presence, including the military presence, from the country. But that can be variously interpreted. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a vote for more insurrection. And, and actually a lot of Sinn Féiners in 1918, possibly didn't think there would be a need for that. Well, their main plank is really uh, an appeal to the Paris Peace Conference. Yeah. And this is based on President Wilson of the United States has talked about like uh, self-determination for small nations and these great empires in Europe being broken up. And let's talk about that for just a second. I mean, so yeah, the Sinn Féin... Uh, I'm going to call it the Sinn Féin Manifesto, even though it's not quite... But the Sinn Féin Manifesto says we're going to go to the peace conference of the First World War and in concert with what Woodrow Wilson has said, the war was fought for, which is the self-determination of peoples. 
So the ta- so they they cite the example of Czechoslovakia, for example. Yes. And then there's a whole lot of others they could cite, but Czechoslovakia is the one that appears in the election literature. You know, they yeah. say that well, if this principle is going to be fairly applied, yeah, why isn't it applied to Ireland? That's a good point. You have the the issue though with things like the Habsburg Empire, like Austria has just collapsed. There is no Austrian right. government uh, knocking on your door in Prague or Bratislava. Demanding it back, yeah. Demanding it back no. or, or having a problem with you uh, and the setting sa- up your own government. Exactly. The same is true of Poland, actually. I mean, a few years ago, I, I you know, started reading about this stuff for the first time. And apparently, you know, so Poland was occupied by three powers and all three of them disappeared through defeat in the war. So the Habsburg Empire, the German Empire and the Russian Empire, the Tsarist mm-hmm. Empire, all of them get defeated in the war and they just disappear. And the Poles, Polish officers come together and they, they declare independence. Yeah, but um, it's a very different, it's very different. Uh, on November the 11th, 1918, actually, yes. interestingly enough. But, yeah, I mean, so, but in one way, like we said, this is very different. So the empires are gone. In Ireland, the empire ain't gone. Yeah, not just in Ireland. Uh, e- Egyptians, Indians, many people who were, who were taking President Wilson at, at his word, uh, taking what he's saying at face value, yeah. if this applies to... The Czechoslovaks or whoever else. The nationalities existing within the German, Russian or Austrian empires or Ottoman empires. Or Ottoman empire. Why why not so people who are uh, in the British empire, who do not wish to be in the British empire. Right. But I mean, having said that, it is kind of unrealistic of Sinn Féin to expect the allies of Britain to, you know, talk about the dismembering of the, not only the British empire, but the United Kingdom. It's it's probably probably very unrealistic. But uh, Sinn Féin do appear to think this is going to work though. Yes, and one of the reasons I think they believe this is uh, that one of the victorious powers, the United States, has a very large Irish American population, a very well, politically well organized, yes, yeah, yeah, very politically strong diaspora there as well, who whose members are members of Congress, who are senators, who are governors, and who are very very strong in the Democratic Party, of which President Wilson is a member. Yeah, I mean. And let's talk about the British reaction to, to this election. So my impression is that the British reaction at government level initially is that this is a phase and this will blow over. Yes, these Sinn Féiners say that they're going to declare independence, but they'll probably end up being more like the parliamentary party and we can we can discuss some sort of home rule thing with them. I, I think that's what they're thinking in late 1918. Well, you can look at the British reaction. If they're thinking too. about Ireland at all, I should yeah. Ask, yeah. Like there's a lot of things going on, yeah. You know, in in Britain at this period, but you know, in the the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, they're dealing with IRB members. They're dealing with a dynamite campaign in Britain, and a lot of these people end up as MPs for the Irish Parliamentary Party. Yeah, the land war and so on. Yeah, you know, the land war. You have Parnell in jail. You have all these these things. So the idea that very militant. Irish nationalists cannot, if not co-opted, into the British parliamentary system. Tamed, let's say. Yeah. That um, this isn't, <clears throat> you know, the first time anything like this has ever happened. And there's an interesting article that somebody was sharing there online recently about the the worry that Sinn Féin MPs would actually come and take up their seats in that period before MPs have to take the Oath of Allegiance. You know, before the, the, the speaker is elected. Okay. Because... Uh, so then they'd have to be ejected physically for the... Yeah. Like the, the potential for them to disrupt the new parliament um, if they weren't intending to take their, the oath of allegiance. Yeah. 
But I mean, I think it's interesting what you're saying, because I mean, the precedent of British policy in Ireland is a mixture of coercion and conciliation going back to the 1880s. And, and the, you do see that. I mean, they, they probably are thinking on those lines. So, you know, they they have locked up quite a lot of uh, Sinn Féiners, including the leader, Eamon de Valera. I, I think, if I remember correctly, only 27 uh, TDs were at liberty in the first till. Yeah. And, and the rest were in jail, you know, out of 73, which, which is a lot. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, they don't they don't declare the dollar illegal until, until September nineteen nineteen. So they they do they do appear to think that they can mix coercion with possibly a new home rule bill. Well, we should say as well, the doll, the the idea of the doll by the Sinn Fein TDs wasn't that it was an assembly for Sinn Fein TDs. It was an assembly for every MP elected in nineteen eighteen. Now. They might be on the rolls of the doll, the likes of uh, James Craig and Edward, Edward Carson, Carson, yeah. <laughs> but they were not going to be attending it, or it was extremely likely that they were going to show yeah. up to take their seats. Uh, correct, and there's actually there's some very funny testimony um, that the, the role is called, and every t- every MP, or as the doll called them, TD, Chuck the Dollar, every name is called, and, and, and there's there's apparently roars of laughter when uh, Edward, Edward Carson yeah. It's called and 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 he's marked Oslar absent. Yeah. You know? But but I mean you know there's also the, also the IPP ones as well. Yes. So but like seventy three out of one hundred and five. So there is what twenty seven. There is uh, thirty two missing. But yeah, let, let's let's move on and and briefly talk about the the, the aftermath. So Sinn Fein, as good as they were, they they declared the dull, which is you know for for practical purposes a revolutionary assembly. It claims state power for itself. Yeah. And was armed conflict inevitable, or or could, was there some way out of this this morass? Well, there'd been attempts to square the circle of uh, two conflicting, completely conflicting views of the way forward for Irish governance. I would say three. You know, I would yeah. say that the Unionist, the Home Rule, and the, the Republican. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. And they'd fail to find an accommodation with the moderate Home Rule Party. Mm. It's even more unlikely that uh, they're going to form a consensus with Sinn Féin. But the Irish electorate have taken this on board. They've been given that option in the election between continuing on with this moderate force, the, the Irish Parliamentary Party, the people who are seeking conciliation with the British, and have just abandoned it, and have gone with the abstentionists, turn your back on the idea of finding some solution with the British some new parliament it's just we're setting up our own parliament now and you can pretty much deal with it yeah and, and that's that's the conundrum so the, the british policy becomes trying to walk expectations back towards home rule which the ele- irish electorate their, the nationalist electorate has moved on from and, yeah. and it's a big problem and, and and it culminates with the treaty which obviously causes a, a kind of a bloody split within irish nationalism but before that there's three even more bloody years or slightly more bloody years of violence between the Republicans and, and the British. And as you said, one factor w- which never gets resolved in this period is, is partition. Uh, what did Sinn Féin say about partition in 1918? Well, it's interesting because, you know, that's just one of the, the major, major areas where the Irish Parliamentary Party had completely lost um, credibility with the Nationalist electorate. Yeah, so, I mean, we should emphasise partition doesn't come about in 1920 or 22. It's, it, it's moved in 1914, yeah. first of all. And it takes very many different shapes, like the idea of what partition will be. First, will it be like the exclusion of the whole of Ulster, which seems to be what the the Ulster Solemn League and Covenant is calling for, and the whole nine-county Ulster. 
but obviously the, the just so the Nevican Covenant doesn't want Home Rule for any part of Ireland, but especially for Ulster. And there are at different stages they're talking about four county exclusion, six county exclusion, parts of counties being excluded. Mm. And um All of which is very bad for politically for the IPP, for the parliamentary party. Well and they get bashed they get bashed for this. Yeah. What's even worse for them is that in nineteen sixteen um they agree and hold a convention yeah, right. in Belfast to get Northern Nationalists to agree to the exclusion of six counties. At this stage, we're talking just about exclusion, that six counties will continue to be directly ruled from Westminster. Yeah. And the only thing will is, is that they're, they're not coming under the governance of a Dublin parliament. There's no talk now at this stage of two home rule parliaments. No, that's down the road. That's 1920, yeah. Yeah, in Ireland. <coughs> you can see a part of the new Sinn Féin, founded in 1917, is disillusioned former Irish Parliamentary Party members in the north. Mm who break off at this stage. Yeah, can you give an example of, of some of them? Well, sort of like George Gavin Duffy and people like that. The Irish Nation League, I think they're called. Yeah. And a lot of the West of Ulster is eventually won by Sinn Féin as well. Yeah. And West of what would be Northern Ireland as well. Yes, and you can see during these these years just different things like the Irish Convention trying to come to a solution. And the Irish, the Irish Unionist Alliance, the, the Southern version of that, the the unionists who live in the three southern provinces know that the, they have to find a, an accommodation with nationalism because there's no way this can continue. But the numbers are against them. Yeah. The numbers are completely against them. That they continue to prevent any type of home rule for Ireland. That now is the time to find an acceptable form of home rule to unionists, at least in the three southern provinces and obviously the, the three border county in Ulster end up being part of that as well but I mean as regards Sinn Féin I mean my impression is that yes partition is a very useful thing to beat the the uh, Home Rule Party with but Sinn Féin don't have a sophisticated idea of what to do about the Unionists they tend to say well the, the Unionists are Irish too and you know Ireland is indivisible uh, and they don't have a very sophisticated policy towards the North and what to do about it I don't think well this isn't just a complaint from um, Northern Unionists it's a complaint from Northern Nationalists as well after right. partition right that Sinn Féin hadn't really given the the issue the level of consideration that uh, required or even come to, you know, some type of compromise, workable compromise, uh, that could have avoided partition. Now, you know, are they, are they very kind of, I think Sinn Féin is not that kind of party, though. I mean, you know, it's, it's not a, poli- a party of seasoned negotiators. It's a party of idealists, uh, you know, firebrand young people, yeah, men and women. You know, I'm I'm not sure that they they were at that stage of their development yet. Some of them later on would become statesmen of of sorts, but they weren't at that stage. I don't think in 1918. We well, can see as well that they're they're running southerners in northern constituencies. There's the failure as well that some people may mention is the failure to run George Irvine in North Fermanagh in 1918. It was a Protestant Republican, and that could have got them a few more votes, perhaps of given them the Fermanagh seat. Which they, they don't win, by the way. It's it's won by a unionist. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it's fair to say though that um, whereas the southern issue is fairly straightforward conflict between self determination versus dominion, you know, the the northern the northern issue is and will continue to be much more complex and much more difficult to resolve. Let's wrap it up though. So what 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 are the long term legacies of nineteen eighteen? Now we could be here all night, but what 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 is the legacy of nineteen eighteen and the election of that year? Well, it sort of kills off to a large extent constitutional nationalist Irish parliamentary party tradition as the main 
voice for Irish nationalism. Now, they don't go away. They still play a part for decades to come both north and south of the border in different guises and in different parties. But Sinn Féin and the parties that come out of Sinn Féin dominate Irish politics or southern Irish politics up to the present day with Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and their concept of the way forward the whole idea of the Irish Free State and what succeeds it with the 1937 constitution all comes from that Sinn Féin tradition basing itself in 1916 basing itself in the 1918 general election and the 1919 with the first all and the declaration of independence Uh, it doesn't come from the parliamentary party tradition it doesn't come from viewing the treaty as a uh, a successor to the 1920 Government of Ireland Act and the home rule that has been on the statute book from 1914. It comes from a completely different political point of view. Yeah, and even, you know, conservative pro-treatyites in later years, like Kevin O'Higgins, were very explicit about this, you know, that, you know, I do not wish to see it stated that the state has that origin because the state has other origins, very obliquely put, but I mean, O'Higgins is identifying with the Sinn Féin tradition, with the, the revolutionary tradition. The other thing I think in in the long term is that there's this very fundamentalist kind of Republican conception that comes out of 1918, which is that the Irish people exercise self-determination on an all-Ireland basis for the last time in 1918. It was the last legitimate election, although with caveats, some people will claim there's 1921 as well, but it's the last all-Ireland election and it's kind of the sine qua non that every election since it's been illegitimate. And this is still with us today, this conception. But in th- in a lot of ways, like it, it it fails to take account of all the complexities that happened in the years since. I would say. Yes, like there's a the difference between de jure and, and de facto. Like you know, concept of Irish history from the the republican point of view, and it's it's it wouldn't be the or a, complete, a, a, a republican point of view. Yeah, we'll talk about like 1918. We'll talk about the first all. Second all, the failure to yeah. properly dissolve second all, and this can, you, you can get very legalistic about this. Yeah, but, it can yeah. get very bogged down in. in um, but the basic claim is that nineteen eighteen is the the last legitimate election. Yeah, and we've seen as well with the Good Friday Agreement in nineteen ninety eight that one of the points that they really try and sell it on from the the nationalist point of view, and also the Southern government was that uh, this was also an all Ireland vote, right? And this was the first all Ireland vote. So it wasn't really an all Ireland no, vote. It, it was two separate referendums. Two separate referendums. And, but it's uh, interesting they had to make that argument, though. That, yeah. that there's in 1998, which is yeah, 70, is it 70 or 80 years after, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're still talking about the 1918 election, and there's there's still a need that they feel they have to say, well, that that, that argument has been superseded now. That is, you know, yes. the, the North voted for the agreement and the South voted for a constitutional change. Yeah. Um, but it, it's interesting. I mean, so it still has, it's considered to still have weight among the electorate. In nineteen ninety eight. Now I don't know how much weight the Good Friday Agreement would have had if the it would have failed to get a majority in the north, but on an All Ireland basis it had a majority. I don't know, could they have sold it on that on that basis? I doubt very much. Probably not. But it's still it's important for people like uh, Sinn Fein and maybe even Fianna Fáil, I, I suspect, that to, to be able to deploy that argument. You know, it's w- one of these things we can look at why the uh, election is so important and it does sort of kill off the as well as so things like as we mentioned before the All for Ireland League, they got they were gone. But that enmity between them and the Irish Parliamentary Party meant that 
they were more inclined towards Sinn Féin than they were towards my understanding the Irish is they, they party. yeah my understanding is they joined Sinn Féin actually mm-hmm. uh, William O'Brien threw in his lot with Sinn Féin in the 1918 election so in closing Cahill would, would you agree with me and say that the election of 1918 is, is also part of a, a wider European and world story oh I think so like um, the end of, of the First World War is, is really revolutionary in a real sense because you know, we're talking about the collapse of empires. We're talking about, like, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. Universal uh, suffrage. Universal suffrage. Like, uh, massive social upheavals in terms of class conflict, <clears throat> in terms of land, in terms of women, in terms of youth, in terms of all these different things. And Ireland is not removed from this. The issues with Irish sovereignty and the way forward for Irish nationalism are very... Irish-centric, they're, they're definitely Irish issues, but they're not divorced from the wider European context of what's going on. Absolutely, and I would say that the story of the 1918 election is part of a wider story there where the old orders just won't work anymore in, in their previous form and that something has to give. The old expectations do. Okay, thanks very much, John. Uh, we'll wrap it up there, and that sort of leaves us open for many other issues to come down the, the line, things like the first all 1919 and the War of Independence so thank you very much for listening uh, we really appreciate it if you get the chance please rate and review the show on iTunes it really does help us if you want to listen to previous episodes of the show please go to the website irishhistoryshow.ie follow us on Twitter Facebook contact us tell us if you like the shows or what you'd like us to cover in the future so on behalf of myself Carl Brennan and on behalf of John Doherty thank you very much <laughs>